Good morning, Cornerstone family. Uh, it's been a delight, a joy to come every first Sunday of the month. Um, I was joking with Elder Rock earlier that uh, I want to move to Lansdale and attend. <laughs> um, actually, that's, that's something Pastor Andrew and I um, talk about, you know, that I would move here, just attend. I'm not, I'm not, just, uh, yeah, something we joke about. Um, well, thank you again for having me. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. Let's reflect on God's word this morning as we read the chapter in its entirety, Exodus 5, 1 to 23. And if I could ask you to stand as we honor God in the reading and hearing of his word. Exodus 5, verses 1 through 23. Hear now God's inerrant word. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you're idle, you're idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, we thank you for your invitation to come this morning to your house and to your presence. But I pray that we, your people, will not merely come, but we would come with gratitude and joyful hearts, reminding ourselves the one who's inviting us, the holy, majestic God, our Father, who loves us so much more than we could ever comprehend. And Lord, so often we come irreverently, flippantly, but I pray that we would get our heart in the right posture, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, and that as we receive your word, that your word would be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, that we may store your word in our hearts, that we may not sin against you, that we may respond in joyful obedience to the glory of your name. Magnify yourself this hour. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We see a group of people whose situation goes from bad to worse. Uh, people whose lives that are already miserable becomes unbearable because of the oppression by Pharaoh. But I would argue that the worst part of this story is not the injustice of Pharaoh, but it's actually how the Israelites respond to the oppression. They forget who God was and is. They forget whose they were. Not completely forget. I'm sure they had knowledge of him, but I want to make the case that their true God was their convenience, was their comfort. And in that way, this passage is actually relatable to us today because the Israelite struggle is actually our struggle, isn't it? Is God just a means to your convenience? Does God exist for your needs, for the things that you desire? Or if I could ask it this way, when you cry out to God, why are you crying out to him? Because you see, the word of God reminds us today that the true worshiper cries out to God, not primarily for guidance, not primarily for freedom, but they cry out for God to be their master, though whatever comes their way. Now, when we hear that word master, it has a negative connotation. When we think of master, the word associated to that is slave, and we have a knee-jerk reaction against that word. But what we're gonna see is that having God as our master is actually the best thing for us. So here's the gospel truth for us today. The true believer cries out to God, not ultimately for freedom, but they cry out for God to be their master. The true believer cries out to God, not ultimately for freedom, but they cry out for God to be their master. Let's reflect on God's word under three points. The rescue in order to worship, the struggle of worship, and then the worship in order to rescue. Let's look at the first point, the rescue in order to worship. I wanna give you a little context by quickly summarizing the beginning of Exodus. The people of God have been slaves and this new king, Pharaoh, is doing everything in his power to oppress the Israelites. He wants to punch down, to beat them, to suppress them. He sets slave masters over them who deal harshly with the people of God. And so consequently, the Israelites live a bitter life, a very bitter life. Well, the slavery, the oppression in Egypt has become so unbearable that God in his compassion responds to the groaning and cries of Israel. 
And so God sets in motion a plan to save his people from slavery. God would save his people through his servant, Moses. And so in chapters three and four, we see God appearing to Moses and preparing him to go to Egypt to rescue his people. Well, this is how chapter four ends. This is the verse right before our passage today. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. What we have here is a beautiful picture of the people of God receiving and believing the good news of salvation. There's hope for them. There's life for them. And they what? They worshiped. Salvation is near. Finally, this is the moment we've been waiting for. Praise God. Hallelujah. And so Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh. And Moses, speaking as God's representative, says to Pharaoh, let my people go. I want to bring two things to your attention. First, we need to keep in mind that when God first called Moses to go, it didn't come without resistance. It didn't come without hesitation. Moses didn't immediately go. He didn't say, yes, Lord, I'm going to go to Pharaoh. I'm going to go to Egypt. I will do as you say. No, he had a lot of reservations. But here he is now in chapter five, facing the most powerful man, king, with boldness saying to his face, let my people go. Back when I was in high school, there was this one time I almost got into a fight. Now, I've never gotten into a fight before. I never had a physical altercation. It's, it's not me. But there was this one time I almost did. Now, for a bit of context, I was a senior. I had just finished gym. And I was changing my clothes, getting ready to go back to, to math class. These two underclassmen were horsing around and they bumped into me and I hit my locker pretty hard. Now, I could have walked away. I should have walked away. Youth group, if you're listening, if you're in high school, you walk away from that situation every time. I didn't know if this underclassman bumped me on purpose or accidentally, but it didn't matter. All my friends saw it and I couldn't let it slide. So I sized them up and I said, well, I could take this dweeb. I started walking towards him, started yelling at him, I wasn't going to really fight him. I just wanted to intimidate him. I wanted to send a message. You can't mess with me. I'm a senior. You're a sophomore. Things escalated real quickly because as I approached him, he picks up his tennis racket and he's getting ready to swing at me. Guess what I did next? This was very foolish of me, but I stared him down and I said, do it. You won't. Do it. And deep down inside, I was saying, please don't do it. Please don't do it. <laughs> now, what, what actually happened was pretty anticlimactic. He, he dropped his racket and he walked away. He was a bigger man that day. Now, <clears throat> the story doesn't sound like a big whoop, but what I failed to realize at that time was that I wasn't just messing with any underclassmen. As soon as the fight was over, my, my friend, he rushed to my side and said, Dave, you made a big mistake. You shouldn't have done that. I said, what do you mean? I could have destroyed him. Yeah, but do you know who his father is? I don't care who his father is. Yeah, his father's a judge. So what? He's not just any judge. He's a superior court judge. So he's a Supreme Court judge of the United States. You know who that was? That underclassman was Phil Alito, as in the son of the Supreme Court judge, Justice Alito. This guy's dad was the highest judge in America. I was clearly messing with the wrong kid. His dad probably could have had me deported, right? I was in some serious trouble messing with the wrong dude. But looking back, if I were to go back to that day, I wish when my friend said, 
Don't you know who his father is? His father is Justice Alito, Supreme Court Judge of the United States. I, I wish I had the theological maturity to have said, yeah, well, my father is the Lord God, judge of all creation. <laughs> Drop the mic and walk out of the ring. <laughs> you know, all kidding aside, maybe this is why the once feeble and reserved and hesitant Moses has now the audacity to stand up against the most powerful man on the earth. Moses finally understands. Moses is finally convinced of who God is. But here's the second and more important thing I want to point out. We need to understand that Moses is speaking to Pharaoh, that though Moses is speaking to Pharaoh, Moses is speaking as God's mouthpiece, his prophet, his representative. So in fact, when Moses speaks, it's the Lord who's saying, let my people go. You, Pharaoh, need to let my people go. My people have been oppressed. My people have endured unjust suffering. My people are serving the wrong master. Cornerstone, what we see here is something so powerful. God is saying to Pharaoh, this group of people that you think belong to you, they actually belong to me. They're mine. Do you, do you see what's going on here? God is defining, claiming who his people are. There's a relationship there. But here's the thing. Pharaoh also has a relationship to God. But the key difference is that Pharaoh can only have a relationship to God as judge. See, all of us in this room, we're gonna have to give an account to the Lord one day as judge. But for those whom God has adopted as sons and daughters, we have the privilege now of approaching him, not as judge, but as father. Now, St. Claire Ferguson once said, the notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters lies at the heart of all Christian theology and is the mainspring of all Christian living. In other words, the way we view our God the way we view God and ourselves, it affects our day-to-day. -day. It affects every day. It affects our worship. Because it's only when we see our status as God's adopted children, as his sons and daughters, we understand the heart of God, our Father. We see the Father's heart. And when we see him as Father and how good he is, how compassionate he is, how loving he is, how kind he is, why wouldn't you want to go celebrate him? Why wouldn't you want to worship him? Why wouldn't you want to go throw him a feast? That's exactly what Moses is asking of Pharaoh. Let the people of God go so we can hold a feast for him. And we want to celebrate him. We want to worship him. Let us go so we could do that. There, there are two parts of my day that I look most forward to. The first is when I drop off my kids at daycare. It's freedom. Right? I have like six hours to myself. I could work. It's peace and quiet at home. It's beautiful. The second part that I look most forward to, ironically, is when I go pick them up. Without fail, every time I pick them up, as soon as they see me, I'm greeted with daddy and they run to the door and, and we embrace. As much as they drive me crazy, it's, it's such a sweet thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's one of the best feelings in the world. Daddy. You know what never uh, has once never happened? When my kids see me for a pickup, they've never said, oh, oh, there's Mr. Lee. I should, I should go home with, go home with him. No, there, there's never been hesitation. There's never once been a time where they had to ask their teacher, is that man my dad? Should I go to him? No, to their friends, I'm Mr. Lee, but to my kids, I'm daddy. And as I was reflecting on this passage, I thought, I wish I greeted God 
the way my kids greet me at daycare. I don't remember the last time I did that. I don't remember the last time I came into his presence wanting that celebration, wanting to run into his presence. And I wonder how many of us came into this worship service this morning wanting to celebrate the Father. How many of us worship with the correct understanding of who God is? Because worship shouldn't be a chore. Worship isn't something we do or give primarily. We worship in response to who he is and what he's done. And so it is a celebration. We who were once in darkness are now walking in marvelous light. We were who once were blind, we now see. We who once were chasing the things that led to death are now walking in the spirit. Is not worship the proper response to the gospel? And yet, it's often easier said than done. Wouldn't you expect someone who was once dead, had no rights, broken, someone like this who was revived by the Father to run to his presence, someone who has experienced this kind of grace to fall at his feet? And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, Sunday mornings isn't something we always cherish. It often does feel like a chore. It's not something we delight to do. It feels like a duty. We're not running to celebrate our Father. No, we're often dragging our feet to worship. Sometimes our worship feels like a funeral rather than a feast. We act like we're doing God a favor by showing up. You know, there are, are many weeks, many days where the worship of God, the celebration of the Father is not priority in our lives. It's not. If we're honest, truthful with ourselves, it is a struggle. There is this struggle in our hearts, and we're going to see why under our next point, the struggle of worship. After Moses and Aaron make their requests before Pharaoh, he doesn't respond in a favorable way. And Moses and Aaron are kind of, they're, they're caught off guard, but they shouldn't have been. Because just in the preceding chapter, God says to Moses that he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let his people go. And so when Pharaoh objects, when he refuses, the leaders of Israel should not have been surprised. In fact, things were going exactly how God had laid it out for them. And so the elders of Israel should have reassured the people, Israel, don't worry, don't panic. God has caught this. I know it looks bleak, but he hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't deserted us. It's going, all going according to plan. Israel, is, he hasn't changed his mind, no. So the confusion isn't with God. The confusion is actually with the people. I and mean, we're left with this question. Why did Israel collapse so easily? Why did they give in so easily? And I wanna to propose to you three reasons. Two of the reasons are pretty obvious. And then the third uh, I'll talk about. Uh, the first and most obvious reason was the physical one. The demand was just impossible. Just when things were as hard as, it be, as they could be, it becomes harder than ever. The Israelites were utterly desperate, facing impossible demands, and they get whipped for failing to meet these demands. Think about the physical torture. They're working under the hot Egyptian sun, no proper protection, no proper hydration. Many of them died because of this. And understandably, Israel is angry that they now have to work themselves to death. They couldn't physically meet the demands of Pharaoh. It was impossible. 
So we understand that. That's understandable. I want to point out there is a bigger problem that here. Yes, it's a problem that they had to work under these horrible conditions. But the bigger problem here is it's not a physical one. It's actually a spiritual one. Okay. Uh, I, I shared earlier how I never got into a physical fight. There was that one time in high school I almost did. But that doesn't mean I never got into a verbal fight, an argument. And if I could be vulnerable with you guys, one of the worst arguments that I ever had was with my wife around uh, this time, a couple of years back. So my youngest son, he just turned three last Monday. And as many of you know, the first birthday is a big deal, huge ordeal. And so it was his first birthday. It was on a Sunday. And I just remember us being, it was a long week, tired, long day of ministry. I just want to go sit, relax, and just enjoy his birthday, right? I couldn't. You know why? Because my wife was a slave master. <laughs> Designs, decorations had to be in the right spot. Everything had to be perfect. It had to be gram worthy. And so I said some things I probably shouldn't have said. I lost it. I snapped. I was impatient. She was impatient. I shared that because I, I didn't feel like her husband. I felt like a slave. Now, looking back, it would have been one thing if I counseled her, if I said, hey, this day is about Noah. Let's make sure he's having a good time. Let's make sure he's comfortable and enjoying. No, but it was about me. Why can't I sit down? Why can't I eat the food? Why can't I have cake? I just want to relax. It's my party too. I just got so angry. You know, but looking back, nothing my wife said or did interfered with the party. It just interfered with my comfort, right? We see something similar with the Israelites in today's text. In verse 15, the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? Think about that question. Nowhere does it say that Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, hey, I want to go enjoy the party. I want to go celebrate the father. You're not letting us do that. Why aren't you letting us do that? No. They're not saying, Pharaoh, we're so fed up with you. We're so angry because you're not letting us enjoy the party. No, we don't see that in our text. It was about their discomfort. God isn't even in the picture. You see, both Israel and I weren't outraged because the worship of God was in jeopardy. No, it was our comfort. The worship of self was being threatened. And so, yes, Israel's physical problem was atrocious, but the bigger problem was that God who promised to rescue Israel wasn't even acknowledged. But there's one more problem I see in today's text, and I think this one is the saddest of them all. Israel is looking to the wrong master. In other words, Israel was looking for salvation in the wrong place. Again, we read in verse 15, then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. They came and cried to Pharaoh. You know, when I first read this, it didn't make sense. Why would you, why would you cry out to Pharaoh? Why would you cry out to the one who was oppressing you, to the one who was suppressing you? Why would you cry out to the one who's making your life miserable? Shouldn't Israel have cried out to God? But here we see they cried out to Pharaoh. And if you think about it, of course they cried out to Pharaoh. Sadly, the Israelites did not know life outside of slavery. This is what they have been accustomed to their entire lives. 
And so naturally they thought that by appeasing Pharaoh that they could find salvation. But they, what they fail to realize is they cannot please their master. Their master cannot be their savior. Why? Because a master is someone who always demands more and more from you. Isn't that what we see in today's text? Go now and work. No straw, but the same quota. You see, what Israel needs is a savior who will rescue them out of slavery. And the same is true for us today. We need someone to rescue us, not at the hands of Pharaoh, but we have a harsher taskmaster in sin. God sees us enslaved. He sees us negotiating with sin, trying to appease it, trying to please it. And friends, I want us to come to the realization that there is no such thing as pleasing sin. Like Pharaoh, sin will always demand more and more from us while giving less and less to us. Unlike Pharaoh who demands more and more of what you and I need, what Israel needs is a savior who will give more and more of himself, which leads us to our last point, the worship in order to rescue. If we continue to read the Exodus account, we learn that God is faithful to his promise. He will one day deliver the people of Israel. He is faithful to his covenantal promise. Moses will be that savior who leads Israel out of slavery. But I want you to notice that salvation is not just freedom from slavery. The whole purpose of Israel's emancipation is so that they could worship and celebrate God, their father. And so if we continue reading the Exodus account, we learn that Israel fails terribly. They forget about God. Israel, God's firstborn son, ends up failing in every single way. When they should have been celebrating God, their rescuer, their savior, they celebrate in horror after false gods. In Cornerstone, I want us to pause here and I want us to reflect on our own lives. Does your life revolve around the celebration, the worship of who your father is and what he's done for you? As you look into your heart, what false gods are you celebrating? As you look back in this past week, what false gods did you try to negotiate with? In what ways have we failed to worship God, the Father? Aren't we much like Israel? We're just like Israel. You see, Israel not only needed a savior who could rescue them from their physical slavery, but they, as do we, need a savior who can rescue us from our spiritual slavery. And as great as Moses was, he can never be that savior. Church, the great news for us today is that our Father, who sees us enslaved, sends the greater Savior, Jesus Christ. We must begin, we must not begin by looking for freedom, but we must begin by looking to the right Master. We begin by looking at the true Israel, Jesus Christ. And unlike Israel who failed to worship God in every way, we see Jesus Christ, God's perfect son, worship God, celebrate the father every single moment of his life. The entirety of his life was worship, worship, worship of the father. And towards the end of Christ's earthly life, we see Jesus in his ultimate act of worship. You see, unlike Israel, who in their most desperate moment, the most unbearable condition cries out to the wrong master. Jesus Christ facing the darkest moment of his life cried out to God the Father. And the God, God the Father met him with silence, with rejection. 
sending him to the cross. We see Christ's worship, his obedience to the Father's will, even obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of Christ's obedience, we who place our trust in him, we have the right, we have the privilege of crying out, Abba, Father. Cornerstone, no other gods will die for you. All these other gods will take and only take from you. But in Christ, we have a master who doesn't demand a master who doesn't take, a master who tells us to lay our burdens down, a master who gives and gives to you, gives himself to you. As we reflect on the person and work of the gospel, may our hearts be drawn to submit and serve the true master, the true savior, Jesus Christ. May the gospel of Jesus Christ be your hope of salvation, not just today, but every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your invitation to come. And Lord, we confess that often we don't come in the right posture. We don't come with gratitude. It's often a chore, a duty. But Lord, thank you that you don't invite us based on our own merit, our own righteousness. But you look to Jesus Christ, who traded places with us, adopted because of his work on the cross. I pray that as we reflect on who you are and what you've done, that we would be filled with joy, with gratitude, with praise knowing that we belong to you, that we forever belong to you. And that when we come into your presence, we would run and delight, that we would celebrate and worship you. Thank you for being our God, our Father. There is none like you, none besides you. Help us to respond in joyful obedience to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray.